Albert Ellis, who was uh, born in 1913 in Pennsylvania, but spent most of his life in New York. Uh, and he was essentially famous for his view that there had not been enough attention to the way that our interpretations of life, our beliefs about our experience caused suffering. Ellis used the word belief, and for Ellis, beliefs, they are underlying ideas or views that we hold in a conscious way, but we rarely state aloud. They are views about other people, about ourselves, views about experience, and they are the underlying sort of perceptions that create the thoughts that annotate our experience. We rarely speak aloud our deeply uh, held views or beliefs. Ellis had what he called the ABC model of the way suffering works. The ABC model is A is the activating event that happens in life. It's an unpleasant event. We'll use, for example, you see a friend, you wave to your friend, and your friend doesn't wave back. So that's the activating event. And then B is the way you interpret that event. It's your belief about it. So it's your perception of the event. So in this case, let's use two possible beliefs. One belief is, damn, look at that. I just waved at that person and they didn't wave back. What, what's going on? I call that person back whenever they call me. I listen when that person's got issues and I just wave and they don't wave back at me. What's their problem? And then the other possible belief we'll use, there's many possible beliefs, but the other possible belief would be, oh, I guess he didn't see me. <laughs> now, the C is the consequences that arise from B, the belief, the way you interpret the events of life. If I interpret a friend not waving back from me across the street as them seeing me and dissing me, then I will feel as C upset, frustrated, disappointed, and hurt. If, on the other hand, I interpret A with a belief B that they didn't see me, they were lost in thought, they didn't see me wave, then C, I will feel very little suffering. I'll just move on. There won't be obsessive thinking. There won't be a, um, a degree of hurt or woundedness. I won't turn it into an obsessive story. I won't call other people and tell them how... <laughs> My friend didn't wave me back. So, the difference is not in A. We've seen that in both situations the exact same event happened. But the amount of suffering we experience is vastly different depending upon how we interpret life. So we all experience adversarial events. We all experience a lot of A material in our lives. People don't take us into consideration, people act at times callously, uh, we get frustrating news, we get physical and emotional setbacks, we experience separation from the loved, we go through breakups, we get fired from jobs. And in each situation, all of these universal experiences, though, get interpreted. And depending upon how we interpret these events in life, plays an enormous difference in how much we suffer. Now, Ellis didn't argue that the quality of the activating adversarial events, the bad news we face, 
doesn't play a role. Of course it does. But the thing about the A material is that we can't do a thing about it. We can't change other people. We can't change bad news. We can't change uh, setbacks we face. We can't change most of the adversarial events we face. We can't change getting fired. We can't change getting dumped. We can't change having losses and separations. But we can change the beliefs, the way we interpret the difficult experiences of life. So what Ellis is saying is that, yes, bad stuff happens in different degrees, and yes, some people have it harder than others, but the thing we can do about it is investigate how we interpret our experience, not view our experience as a personal insult, but look at how we interpret it, how we, what our beliefs are. So, this almost eerily recapitulates the Buddha's four noble truths. The first noble truth is that crap happens. <laughs> Not only do we all grow old, we get sick, we experience death, but the Buddha went on in that list and he said, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. In other words, we experience inevitable difficult emotions, we experience loss of the loved, we experience being stuck with people we're not thrilled about, <laughs> we experience frustrations, and we're stuck with all the pains that arise from having bodies. So those are the A's of Ellis, the first noble truth. The B is the second noble truth. The Buddha said all of the first noble truths we could survive were it not for the fact that we crave life to be other than it is. How do we do that? One, we take all of these universal experiences that all people will get to know sooner or later, we take them personally. It's a personal affront that this happened to me. It's a personal injury. Now, even if to a certain degree, some of our suffering happens based on our identity so that not everybody knows that suffering. If you are LGBTQ or a person of color, you probably know greater degrees of interpersonal insults and, and bias than people who are privileged, but still there are other people in your group that will experience the same degree of deprivation or dis. Uh, disappointing experiences, and the degree that you suffer more than they do will be completely contingent upon how you interpret those events. So this is not, again, to pretend that bad stuff doesn't happen, but it's calling attention to the way we can do something or change the amount of suffering that goes into our life. The Buddha said that the bees we experience that cause needless suffering are things like taking the universal personally, as I said. There's also trying to resist or avoid pretending that something difficult hasn't happened, denying it, avoiding conflicts, avoiding acknowledging painful situations. That only makes difficult A's activating experiences worse. We can interpret 
things in many different ways that cause suffering. We can believe that we will always be miserable after a breakup. Or we can believe that we will never ever get employed again after we get fired or laid off from a job. That's a belief. A belief involves a speculation or generalizing statement about the way things are. A is an actual event. So, the Buddha noted that there are ways to put aside the stressful ways that we interpret experience so that we can experience instead a great degree of peace when crap happens in life. So, what are some of the irrational beliefs? Ellis was uh, very, very... uh, Promethean and his his descriptions of the irrational, different kinds of irrational beliefs, it would take far too long to list them all. If you look up Albert Ellis and irrational beliefs, you'll find long uh, summaries. So, um, one of them, I'm going to go through a list of some of the most popular. One activating a rational belief that causes suffering is that it's important to be approved of by everyone. That if somebody doesn't like us, that something bad is happening or there's something wrong with the state of affairs or that we have to do something. It's very difficult to learn this. To a degree, we are all social beings and most of us are not like George Bush (laughs) completely permitted to act unilaterally despite the universal condemnation of every other nation on the planet. Most of us are far to the other side. We are um, constantly wanting everybody to approve of our decisions. It's not enough that most people, or the people we care about, But when we find out that somebody in our family is angry with us or disappointed that we're not connecting with them enough, then we get upset and we get irritated or frustrated in return. Uh, The second is uh, it's important to be seen as competent in everything we do in front of other people. When I was in... uh, traveling in England a while back, I had the pleasure of going to a pub, this was many years ago, around the time that Oasis was big, and uh, I saw entire families singing along with Oasis songs, and the beautiful thing was that most of them had terrible voices, and it created this drunken cacophony, but everybody in that culture felt permitted to sing along with Oasis, and warbling, getting the lyrics wrong, jovial. In America, if you sing aloud, you are considered to be mentally ill. (laughs) Or having a stroke. Uh, So, uh, we in our culture are often very frightened of being mediocre or bad at anything, and it keeps us from trying out new things, and it makes us give up entire domains of activities where we could find joy and happiness. Um, for example, I, when I was 47, uh, learned to skateboard. It was a 
lifelong thing I decided I couldn't do because I'm not particularly coordinated, but I did it anyway. And uh, it involved lots of feelings of discomfort, which was essentially involved 10-year-olds wheeling by me, effortlessly gliding and laughing in my direction. And a lot of my mind said, well, this is, I should give this up immediately because 10-year-olds are laughing at me. And so what I would have done is essentially give up something that for a period of my life until I actually started falling a lot, uh, caused a lot of joy. Um, so that brings up the third irrational belief, which is that we should be comfortable all the time. That if we're not comfortable, that if we're feeling anxious or worried or if we're feeling uh, sad or bored or lonely, that means there's something wrong and we have to do something. That feeling of having to fix, solve, address is very often an irrational belief as well. Because much of human emotions cannot be fixed or solved. They have to be held and felt and acknowledged. Uh, another core rational belief is that suffering is always externally caused. In other words, failing to examine our own role. Many people look through the, the treatise of their interpersonal relationships with a tendency to blame all of their exes and fail to note, well, if we've only been dating schmucks, who exactly is doing the choosing here after all? <laughs> Unrealistic expectations are inflexible, dogmatic beliefs signaled by the words, I should, I ought to, I must, I have to, and I need to. We're not talking about little things like, I should make lunch now. We're talking about the big shoulds that we hit ourselves over the heads with. The, I should be in a relationship by now and successful. All of the people I went to college with have published novels. <laughs> shoulds essentially establish an arbitrary, irrational sense of moral, moral obligation that is in no way enshrined. That is simply, basically, if anything, an interjection of some of the biases of our caretakers or society, but in no way hold any validity to them. Shoulds essentially posit an, an entirely different reality where we had different caretaking, different experiences, and thus managed to do different things. Shoulds are another way of many times uh, essentially feeling less than or creating suffering out of difficult adversarial experiences. Catastrophizing is the irrational belief that in every new situation in life it's helpful to keep in mind the absolute worst possible outcome. Not all of the interim things that could be a mixture of good and bad, not the good possibilities, but the absolute worst possible <laughs> outcome, which is essentially, uh, if we get fired, I'll never get another job, I'll go broke, I won't be able to pay the rent, I'll get kicked out, nobody will love me, and I'll die on the street. <laughs> Even when we're facing really difficult experiences, um, 
we can catastrophize in ways that essentially overlook all of the uh, benefits or middle experiences that will happen. This year, a very close friend of mine died of cancer at the age of 45. But he actually, throughout it, never catastrophized. He acknowledged that he, uh, when the time came, that, and when I was uh, doing the hospice visits, he acknowledged the reality, but he also acknowledged that throughout the experience there was going to be times of connectedness and joy. He failed to turn it into the simple, I'm going to die. So the belief, the way he interpreted A, which would be a knockout punch for most of us, completely changed the amount of suffering he experienced. He didn't take it personally. He used it as an opportunity to connect with all the people in his life. He used it as an opportunity to jettison unloving relationships and to connect deeply with those that really mattered, to do the work that was unresolved, to visit uh, Paris, to do, to live his life. So, um, and there's so many others. The illusion of control, the tendency to blame oneself for things entirely outside of our control is a, another huge way that many people cause needless suffering. But what are the things that we do to address irrational beliefs? Well, I'm going to just list a few. And these are essentially um, strategies that Ellis and the Buddha both had very much in common. One is always when there is uh, ongoing obsessive thinking to acknowledge that there is an irrational belief present. Even if you're faced with a really difficult experience, that doesn't mean that obsessive thinking has to necessarily resolve. There are ways to accept, to deal with on a moment-by-moment basis, to deal with issues as they arise without creating obsessive ideations or intrusive thoughts. If intrusive obsessional thinking is present, it means that we are not feeling the emotions, accepting the experience, and not taking it as some kind of personal insult by the universe. So first, when we find ourselves in lasting suffering, where we are, in other words, stuck in the story, of what's gone wrong, or a fear, is one, to acknowledge that an irrational belief is likely present. Two, is to state the belief aloud. That's not just think the thoughts, which are articulations or iterations of the belief, but actually state aloud what the uh, core underlying belief beneath all the thinking is. So, for example, if we get fired from a job and we start worrying about how we're going to pay the rent, the underlying belief is, I won't have enough money because I got fired and really bad things will happen and I won't be able to deal with it. When you state aloud the full underlying belief, then ask yourself, would you ever 
ever tell that to somebody who was going through the same situation? <laughs> Would you go to somebody, a friend, even somebody you didn't like that much? <laughs> Would you go to somebody that you barely knew who just got fired and said, and say, holy McCully, I can't, because I'm, you lost your job, how are you going to pay the rent? You're never going to get another job. You're completely screwed. Oh, no. Would you think that would be helpful? Would they think it would be helpful? And yet, how often do we do that to ourselves? Do we go to a catastrophizing view and create lots of visualizations and other kinds of word-based thinking essentially telling us that we're not going to be able to deal? We very often will go to people we like, even a little bit, and we'll say, don't worry about it, you've got lots of friends, you've survived in the past, you will definitely do okay now, I'll be there, people that care about you will be there, we'll figure it out together. How often do you tell yourself that? Many people fail to. So, avoiding absolutes in the way we speak is quite essential. Ellis argued for its eradication almost entirely. So, in other words, don't use I should, I ought to, I must, I have to. Replace it with I would prefer, or I've always in the past, or I've been trained to believe that this should happen, or that I've been trained that the next thing that uh, is important to do is, but don't use I should, because even if you think it's not doing damage, even if you are fairly confident that in using I should, I must, I ought to, I have to, even if you believe that you get it, that it's not an obligation, <clears throat> words actually do carry a lot more power than you believe. And unconsciously, every time we say I should, I ought to, I must, I have to, we are signaling to ourselves that something's wrong unless we do those shoulds or musts. Ellis was a big fan, and so was the Buddha, of looking for the contrary incompatible evidence. In the Buddha's teaching, Yonisa Manasikara, he said, after you understand the allure of certain types of beliefs, look for the drawbacks. Look for the incompatible qualities. So when you have a belief, for instance, we get dumped, out of the blue, in a relationship, we feel wounded, that's okay. But then we add the belief, I'll never find someone else. Or whenever I find, I have a broken picker. Or there's nobody out there who will ever love me. Or whatever. Where did all the nice people go? <laughs> then, to ask ourselves what we are basing this on, beyond a few cherry-picked anecdotal experiences. Do we know for a fact? Do we have any evidence? Have we not in the past when we've gone through firings taken care of ourselves? Do we not have the possibility to choose in different ways? 
do we really have the evidence to conclude that every good relational partner in a city of eight million has been taken? <laughs> and finally, my favorite question is, what would be life be like if I couldn't think this thought? When we have that real triggering, dispiriting, self-sabotaging belief that makes us feel like crap and small and tiny and vulnerable and untaken care of, what would it be like if we simply couldn't think that thought? And if your answer is, well, if I couldn't think that I'm screwed every time a setback happens, if I couldn't think that I'm destined for loneliness every time I go through a breakup, if I couldn't think that I'm going to live my life completely financially destitute every time we struggle to find work, if we couldn't think that thought, if one, I'd be a lot happier, and two, it really wouldn't make that much of a difference. In other words, I'd still look for work, still look for a relationship, still climb back onto my feet after a disappointing event. Then it's a signal that the problem isn't the activating events in our life, it's the belief. 